Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode, oh no, I'm not prepared, episode 54 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Gavin, and that is Mike. Hello, Mike. How are you? This is what happens when I let you do the intro. It sure is. is, It's not easy to remember that number. It's not, even though it's right in front of me. Okay, a little fourth wall stuff. So we discovered rather early on that for some reason, the website that we used to record the podcast does not work in Firefox. <laughs> I think it only works in Chrome. I, I did not know that, but I use Chrome, so yeah, because I'm a I'm a loser and I use Firefox uh, because my laptop doesn't have the you know 64 gigabytes of RAM that uh, Chrome requires to have one tab open. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I have two, not even just two tabs. I have two different browsers open because I hate Chrome. That's a hot take, but it's mine. And I hate Chrome so much that I have everything else for the podcast open in Firefox. Uh, and I had the Firefox window open. I didn't have Chrome open, so I couldn't see what episode it was. Anyway. Um, Do a little tip. If you I have, the I know, URL, I know. I can, oh, you're right. You're right. Just look right at the URL. It says EP54. Yep. That tells you what we're doing today. And you know, uh, dear listener, that because Gavin did the intro, this is one of the Mike Takes the Wheel episodes. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so, Gavin, do you want to give a, uh, again, quick fourth wall stuff? Why is it that uh, today is a Mike Takes the Wheel episode? Oh, I didn't have an actual reason. I just was like, hey, do you want to, do you want one last one bef- before the year ends? Uh, May as well. Like, we do, yeah, I mean, we yeah. do one of these like every, you know, every 10 episodes or so. This is uh, give or take. volume five. Yep. Yeah. And we're at episode 54, so we're kind of right in the sweet spot. Nice little, uh, that's a little history lesson as we go into the holiday break. Um, and so this is, uh, this episode is going to be a little bit different for a couple different reasons than the previous Mike takes the wheel episodes. Number one, I told Gavin what we were doing in advance. Right. Well, that was because I specifically asked. Um, yes. I'm I've, philosophically opposed to actually doing that, but you did ask. So I did. So I am debating on putting tweezers, or like tweezers, uh, teasers oh, on boy. social media. Um, maybe a, a couple days before each episode goes up. Mm-hmm. To be like, hey, this is, you know, a hint I at what this week's happening. episode might be. Um, I didn't get around to it today, but I asked him. I think I sent the text late this morning or late last night. Um, and you didn't respond until this morning, which was fine. But I, right. uh, I, I eventually just didn't have, I didn't get around to putting the, the teaser up on social media. So, <laughs> I, yeah, otherwise I, I wouldn't have asked. So let me know. Uh, maybe leave us a, uh, a voice message on anchor.fm you can find the link to do that uh down below in the show notes maybe leave us a voice message let us know uh how you think about that idea putting teasers on social media or if you like the surprise of just finding it in your podcast feed every wednesday yeah we can uh you know we can make adjustments as we are going through all of this yeah absolutely especially because the the next couple of episodes are relatively low maintenance uh next week's episode is going to be very fun uh, oh, is it? Oh, it's it's really fun. Mike doesn't. I think I've mentioned it, but I don't think I've been mm-hmm. like, "Hey, this is what we're doing." Um, but it's very chill. It's very relaxed. Um, and so, normally, what we said we started doing a couple episodes ago was uh, to keep a little history in each episode. Uh, we do a today in history uh, before we get into the science stuff. But because this is a history episode, I started. I don't have the calendar on me just to sort of use as a reference. So then I just Googled today in science and there was really nothing 
interesting. It was all a bunch of birthdays of people I'd never heard of. Um, so it's not just the calendar that's kind of garbage. So uh, we're just going to skip that part and move on. Right, and we're going to move on. And what's kind of nice about um, this particular episode is that even though it is a Mike Takes the Wheel history episode, there is a fair amount of science in this one, uh, which kind of yeah, brings me absolutely. to... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, brings me kind of the, the second thing I wanted to point out, which as I was um, uh, gathering my notes and just preparing to talk about um, this particular individual, I realized that I was way, way out of my depth when it came to... <laughs> When it came to talking about this, so we are mm-hmm. we are going to provide a overview today of um of somebody who deserves to be known by more people. And fortunately, when I brought this up to Gavin, uh, Gavin said he was familiar with this person, so mm-hmm. um we can have a little bit more of a uh, a back and forth dialogue. Yeah, with regards to um a man named Alan Turing, uh, who if you've heard that name, you might hear it um with World War Two. And just a a quick backstory here. Uh, last year when I was teaching World War Two. Uh, we had some extra time last year, and so I gave the kids um, a choice of three people. And as I was coming up with who I wanted to you know, do with Today's in Science, um, I sort of said, all right, we'll do a World War II um, uh, kind of focused episode. And last year, when I was teaching, we had some extra time. I gave my kids three choices of who they wanted to learn about. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was a guy named uh, Joseph Mengele. Um, oh, are you familiar oh, with him? I sure am. Yeah, so that was um, one person, um, uh, the angel of death, and um, basically I describe that as the part of the Holocaust you always knew existed, but you were never taught in school. Um, mm-hmm. To make a very long story short, Joseph Mengele was this horrific Nazi doctor yeah. who did all sorts of horrific experiments, particularly with twins, mm-hmm. um, uh, as part of the Holocaust. One of the other people was this guy named Hiro Onada, um, who... Uh, was a Japanese soldier in World War II. Um, Gavin, what year did World War II end? And, uh, 45? 1945. Except that Hiro Onada was, um, stuck out on the Philippines for 29 years and was continuing to fight World War II until 1974. Um. Yeah. It was, and that and that kind of goes into the whole idea that uh, you know Japanese soldiers were willing to fight to the death, and right, um, yeah, they had to um, like recommission this guy's old commander or whatever the proper term is, and like send him out there and be like, no, like war's over, dude. And it 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 took a while until um, until eventually he realized, okay, the war is over, and he ends up um, leading kind of a really interesting life. We are not talking about either of those two today. Right. Um, but these were these were out of the three I was picking. Um, we end up with Alan Turing, and kind of my tagline for my students um, as they were choosing which of these three to learn about. Um, and I think this is a, a a fair description. Was Alan Turing the gay nerd that won the war? But apparently, that's not good enough for some people. Yeah, I guess that's. I mean, that that's kind of like the meme where it's just like the guy who like throws his hands up and it's like. <laughs> I guess. I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my reaction to that. Where it's like, yeah, that's all true, but not how I would describe him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, um, and there is uh, there is so much more um, to learn about this guy. But that's exactly. sort of uh, mm-hmm. the the hook that I would use. So we uh, we are talking about um, a gay nerd that wins World War Two, um, and for the first time in which, which by the world, way, which which I, I want to say. That might sound like an exaggeration. It 
is not. Uh, it, 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 is, it, is, it, it is a bit, but less than you think it is. Yes, it is an exaggeration, but it is not... Um, it, it, it's exactly like you said. It is not as big of an exaggeration as you might think. So let's get into it. Uh, who was Alan Turing? And for the first time in Mike Takes the Wheel history... Um, we are, I believe, um, for the first time, we are talking about someone that is not an American. We are talking about yeah. someone that is British. Um, Alan Turner was born in um, in Great Britain in 1912. And from an incredibly early age, he showed just this incredible ability to, um, to solve math and science problems. Uh, the school he was at from ages six to nine, the headmistress said that, um, that, she had had clever boys and hardworking boys, but that Alan was just a genius. She, he was, he was something else. And you could tell from that early age that he was, you know, truly something special. And so eventually he gets to the age of 13. He goes to this other, uh, what's described as an independent boarding school. He continues to excel at math and science. It is very clear that this kid is a prodigy. Uh, but he didn't, and this caused some problems for him. He didn't care much for like classic literature, right? Um, yeah, and one, uh, and you can imagine, you know, there's uh, also. Can I can I pause you really quick? Yeah. If this name rings a bell to anybody, but you can't quite place it, it's because there was actually a movie made about him. Um, oh really? I, when was that? Uh, relatively recently. Let me see. So the movie is called The Imitation Game. Oh, okay. Uh, it came out in 2014, and uh, Turing, at least in, as an adult, he it shows him sort of throughout his life. But uh, as an adult, and for most of the movie, he's actually played by Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, Is he really? Really, really great movie. Uh, it's a little long, um, but it's a very different kind of war movie. Um, it's basically the nerds version of a war movie, more or less. <laughs> um, but it's really, really good. 10 out of 10. Would recommend. I, at some point, I, we will uh, we will have to check that out. Um, or at least I will. It sounds like you have already watched it. Um, but so when uh, when Turing was at this independent boarding school as a teenager, um, the uh, one of his teachers said you know, they were hoping that he would become educated at one point um, and become fans of you know, the classic literary works, as though what he was doing was not education. Um, but yeah, that that didn't matter much. He still continued to excel. He enrolled in. Um, he enrolled in college, graduated at 22 with all sorts of honors. Um, and then after he graduated, he put his talents into practice, which is kind of where our story begins. Everywhere you go um, with Turing, we'll talk about something called the Turing machine. Mm -hmm. And this is where I have it down here in my notes. I have no idea. I, I tried. I've got a couple notes here to try and describe it, but I frankly cannot tell you what this is. It is too smart for me. Um, to actually talk about, but basically as best as I can tell from what I know is that the Turing machine is not like an actual machine. It is not something with buttons and levers no. and things like that. Um, do you know what a Turing machine is? It is a very rudimentary computer. Uh, because, you know, obviously this, at, at this point, this was, uh, at some point in the, 30s yeah uh computers as we know today obviously did not exist at that time um 
this was a very simple computer that would basically spit out yes or no in response to certain math problems. Um, it could do math and then basically you would sort to, to my understanding, I don't, you know, I haven't read, you know, his, his research about it, but essentially, as I understand it, it would be like, you would put in the, the math problem and a corresponding answer. And it would tell you yes or no, as I understand it, it is, it is more complicated than that, but I think in, in a way that's simple enough for, uh, smooth brains like you and I to understand, uh, that's, <laughs> that's more or less what it was. Yeah, so I mean, just in the couple of websites I was looking at, it apparently can simulate, um, like any, um, like any computer algorithm, and it basically um, is part of this larger proof said that um, there are some problems that computers cannot solve. Right was part of the um, was part of the whole point of this. It's been cited as one of the um, most influential you know pieces of thought or thought experiments in um you know in math in math history um and again we're talking about the 1930s here and that's part of what um turing is famous for is mm -hmm. doing all these proofs in the early early days of what could be considered any form of a modern computer so um, he lays I, a lot I of that think, groundwork i think it's interesting because he said that this is what he's most well known for no, no, no. I, not I would say, what well, he's most well known for. We're I was going to say, I'm that. like, that would depend on who you ask, I think. Right. We're gonna if you ask to... a mathematician, yeah, that's probably what he's most well known for. And that's part of what's, um, again, very interesting about Turing is that he was good at, he was good at a lot of things and he's known for a lot of things. I have this later on in my notes, but a complete afterthought that what a lot of people don't know is that he was also a marathon runner. Um, yeah. He tried to qualify for um, the Olympics at one point. Um, and he was, when he was trying to qualify, he wound up running only 11 minutes slower than the British silver medalist of that year um, at two hours and 35 minutes. Um, and he said that he just ran because he had such a stressful job that that was the one way that he could uh, kind of burn off the stress was just to run really fast. <laughs> uh, right. And it, it you know, again, just kind of showing the, you, know, you would say, Renaissance man that Alan Turing was. Um. But so that's the Turing machine. There's a number of other things. You go to his Wikipedia page um, and, you know, on the known for part, there's a bunch of different things that are listed there. However, when we're talking about Alan Turing and the gay nerd that won the war, we're going to talk about something called the Enigma machine. And this is um, one of the coolest pieces. There's a very uh, cool video that is online that I will um, that I will try and link in the show notes for everybody that explains the Enigma machine. The really simple way to think about this is, uh, Gavin, did you ever as a kid have um, one of those like um, wheels with let, it was like an outer wheel and an inner wheel with letters on either side? You know what I'm talking about? I do. I didn't have one, but I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Basically what it is for those people at home, basically what you do is you, um, just kind of transpose, you transpose this wheel and you have each letter correspond to another letter in the alphabet. So maybe A goes to B, B goes to C, C goes to D, etc., etc. If you do that, then you can write out a message. You can translate it with each letter. Again, A goes to B, B goes to C, etc. 
and it comes out looking like this random gobbledygook that nobody could ever read. Yep. Until you go back and you go change all the B's to A's and C's to B's, etc., etc., and then it spells out your original message. That's a very that's something called a Caesar cipher. It's a very 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 simple way to encrypt a message so that way people can't just read it, you know, off the bat. And this kind of thing is really important when you're in warfare and you're spying on um, on other people and you don't want them to know where your troops are moving or what your plans are. And so what the Nazis had and was something called the Enigma machine. Now, with an old school Caesar cipher, there's basically 26 combinations of how you want to match up those letters. Mm -hmm. The Nazi Enigma machine um, which was an actual machine that um, you would press buttons and um, different letters would yep. light up. It had a hundred and or just about a hundred and fifty nine quintillion possible combinations. Yeah, and because of this, it was thought to be by many people, including the Nazis, that it was going to be impossible to break. Mm -hmm. Nobody was going to be able to figure out what these messages that Nazis were sending were, um, well, even if you had one of the, these machines. The yeah, kicker was. The kicker was, you know, given enough time, enough time, uh, you could figure it out. There, using using technology already available, it was not impossible to figure out. However, what the Nazis did mm -hmm. was every night at midnight yes. they would shuffle the code. And this is what makes the Enigma machine again so seemingly impossible to crack is that it's not just one combination, right? It could be changed and rechanged, and different parts can be swapped out, and different letters can be met. It is, it really is, um, kind of a remarkable, um, you know, invention and piece of cryptography. Yeah, However, absolutely. It's got. Um, I'm assuming there are you know a number of flaws, but there's kind of one fatal flaw that was pointed out to me um, about this is that there is no letter in the Enigma machine. No letter will ever become itself. When you are going through the Enigma machine, if you press the letter P, it will always show up as one of the other twenty-five letters. Okay, I didn't. I didn't know that, but I mean, yeah, that does significantly decrease like the number of permutations that you can get out of it. But still, if it's in the quintillions, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, exactly. That is yeah, that is number so high. However, again, we are talking about Alan Turing here, who is a genius and has been for some time. And so he was part of a team that in 1939 um, worked to make this thing called the bomb. And because it's British, it's spelled B-O-M-B-E because mm -hmm. of course it is, uh, but pronounced bomb that was able to decode these messages. Um, it was first done in 1939. And then apparently there was some sort of refinement in 1940. I'm not sure what the difference was, um, but they were able to that early on in the war. And the war rages on for, you know, another six years after mm -hmm. this point. But they're able to decode these messages early on to figure out uh, what the Nazis were planning on doing. Sometimes it would be just weather messages they were sending to, um, to their different uh, troops in different places. But now the Allies were able to know what was going on, know what was going on inside the minds of the Nazis, and what they were telling everybody to do. 
And so um, on the Wikipedia page here for Turing, um, there is a very important caveat that just says, you know, it is impossible to actually figure out, um, you know, what would have happened if, if this hadn't been done. What would happen if Alan Turing hadn't existed, if he hadn't made this, etc., etc.? Nobody knows. Right. How, right. However, so with that important caveat made, um, it's a war historian named um, Harry Hinsley said that his work shortened the war in Europe by two years and saved 14 million lives. That would not surprise me whatsoever. And again, imagine, you know, that sounds absurd until again you realize what we're talking about mm-hmm. understanding what the enemy is doing they think they have a secret code and they don't and understanding that you realize oh my goodness that's going to drastically change just the you know who has what information in this process the nazis think that they are talking secretly with everybody so if their code gets out they or if their secret message gets out they don't care because they think it's unsolvable and it turns out it's not. And so again, mm-hmm. with all of the usual caveats, it's impossible to know. But Alan Turing, when I when we say um, when I say, you know, the guy that won the war, that's an exaggeration. There was no single person that won the war. That no, and he and said. he also he worked with a team as well. He worked he worked with a team, but he was the lead person on the team. And if we're talking about a Mount Rushmore of people that. Um, you know, that should get credit for helping to beat the Nazis. He's on that Mount Rushmore. Yeah. He's a hundred percent a part of that team. And so it becomes, um, you know, he's, um, he's revered. He is this war hero. There are statues um, that are built of him and have been built of him um, in the many years since his death, which, um, which kind of brings me to the last section that I wanted to talk about here was his personal life um in 1941 so shortly well after, actually there's yeah. there's one tidbit and i'm currently looking at the wikipedia page to see if i can corroborate this because you know how sometimes like bio bio films can be a little yeah. uh, that they, they can basically exaggerate or you know fill in some details and so i i don't know if this is true but how the movie phrases it is mm-hmm. um how they actually ended up cracking the Enigma machine because it's like, even with this big fancy computer, you know, for the time that he built, uh, it still just was not able to process the information b- before each day passed and they rechanged the code. And when they, you know, update the code every day, you have to basically start over from scratch. Right. Um, every message that they ended, every transmission that was sent throughout oh, the day. Yes, yes. Yes, um, the, I the, can't believe I forgot this. The first one that would come through would be, I think, at six in the morning, and it would be a weather report, and it would be weather something something something, and then end in Heil Hitler, of course, because and Nazis. So if- and so, if you know that you you already know what the letter H corresponds to, I believe because because German is spelled H E I L. Mm-hmm. So you know what those four letters correspond to, and then the rest of the letters in Hitler as well, and so that cuts down your work significantly. It, and so if you if you plug that into this computer, it it would figure out the code each day with, within minutes. 
and then they could just start start deciphering all the messages and figure out uh, you know what each message was saying and they figured this out like you said not terribly far into the war but then what the the mo- at least again this is from the movie um mm-hmm. what they sort of do is they have to figure out okay how much can we help how much of these decoded messages do we act on because if they figure out that we have cracked it they'll stop using it and they'll switch to something else that we'll have to crack all over again and so it becomes a little bit of okay how much do we want to um actually who, who do we let live and who do we let die mm-hmm. which and, is again a horrible problem to you know have anyone to uh, be put in and yet that's the situation you're in in wartime exactly and again this is i'm i'm sure I'm sure that this was not an actual detail, uh, but in the movie, one of his teammates, you know, being, you know, back in the day when everyone got drafted, uh, one of the people working on his team, his brother, the, the, again, how the movie played out, probably mostly for drama, but uh, the day they figured it out, one, one of the first messages they deciphered was that one of the characters on the team, his brother, who was uh, in the military, his ship was scheduled to be attacked. And they were like, we can't do anything until we figure out how to do it right. If we do too much, then they'll figure out that we know how to do it and they'll do something else that we'll have to start all over again at. So I, I did not know that detail. And that is to me, that's fascinating. Again, yeah, you know, the, once you have a, that, a, a fraction of that might be true. I don't know what fraction, um, but but then the rest of the movie just became the team doing math to figure out, OK, statistically, what actions should the military act on or what messages should they act on to have the most impact in the war without tipping off the Germans? And that is that is one of those things I'm sure. What's the name of this movie again? Uh, it's called The Imitation Game. The imitation game that is uh i will have to add that to you know a list of things to watch before i get to world war ii this year um this year with my students because it sounds i mean it sounds incredible um how much of alan turing's personal life did they cover in the imitation game quite a bit so um does it cover who he was engaged to at one point it sure does um do you remember what might be interesting about the person he was engaged to in the context of alan turing uh, that it was a woman. In 1941, so again, during the war, shortly after the bomb is created, um, and again, we're talking about the bomb, we're talking about the bomb that, you know, cracks the name of code, not the bomb. Um, mm-hmm. He gets engaged to a woman that is named uh, Joan Clark, who was also um, a cryptographer working with him. Now, this is interesting, if you remember going back to the beginning here, part of how I hooked my students I referred to Alan Turing as a gay nerd. Mm-hmm. I hope you're with me here on the whole nerd part. Um, but Alan Turing was gay. And after he became engaged to this woman in 1941, it was pretty shortly thereafter he admitted to her that he had some sort of, and again, I don't know exactly what the terminology was or how that conversation went, but said he had some sort of homosexual feelings or um, gay thoughts or something along those lines. And apparently, the uh, the uh, Joan Clark says, you know, okay, I, 
it, the way the Wikipedia article describes it, kind of reading between the lines, it sounds as though she wasn't surprised. Uh, right. is sort of the and best I, way I can phrase this. Go ahead. Right. And, and she, I think it's important to talk about her as well. She was a, you know, very talented mathematician as well. Mm-hmm. And she was um, sort of secretly at first and then out just completely outwardly brought to uh, the same team working on this for the British intelligence, British intelligence agency um, at the time too. And uh, because she was a woman, she was at first kind of not allowed to be with the boys because there's no way a a woman couldn't possibly uh, be as good at math as a man. Uh, And so she ended up getting hired uh, as just like a person on a typewriter uh, elsewhere, like in the, intelligence facility um and alan would sort of sneak her uh things to help decrypt more or less throughout the day and sort of as he became more and more sort of the head guy of the team he brought her formally more and more into the team um so again that's as i understand it from the movie i've not really looked into her outside of that uh but that's, you know, she's and she she's played by Kira Knightley, uh, who is fantastic uh, in that movie as well. So excellent movie, please check it out. <laughs> and I am a hundred percent willing to uh, to buy that. You know, just based on everything I know about Alan Turing, which admittedly is not uh, you know, is not too much. Based on everything that I know, it's you know, it seems as though he's just one of those people. It's just like man, everything this guy did was great. Like there's not, you know, there's not a whole lot of blemishes on this guy's record on his own. Mm-hmm. There are, however, blemishes with a number of people surrounding him. Yes. Which is where we get to sort of um, the downfall and where we get to the, and apparently that's not good enough for some people, part of my intro. Mm-hmm. And so in 1952, so the war has been over for about seven years now, Alan Turing is 39, um, and he is convicted for what is called gross indecency, mm-hmm. which is... Um, a, there was a law in Great Britain at that time against, uh, I, I don't know exactly what the term is, uh, homosexual acts, apparently yeah. is what it is. Um, Alan Turing was having a relationship with another man, um, someone described as a 19-year-old unemployed man at the time. Alan Turing was convicted of gross indecency and given a choice. You can either go to prison or you can take hormone therapy to um, reduce your to reduce his libido, and again, this is hormone therapy in 1952, which I can't imagine was all that refined. Yeah, so I actually looked into like through the Wikipedia page, looked more mm-hmm. into uh, the actual like chemical that they used, and it's essentially a form of estrogen. Mm-hmm. And so they essentially that. Uh, it's currently used very rarely uh, today, but in the past it was used for supporting women. Uh, like it was given to women who would frequently have miscarriages to help them not do that. Um, and also for this kind of thing. And when we're talking about this kind of thing, what ends up happening is, you know, Alan Turn takes this and he said, you know, I, I uh, no doubt shall I emerge from it a different man. But quite who I've not found out. And that's 
that was kind of prescient the way he said that because as he was taking this um he developed erectile dysfunction he had um breast tissue that was starting to form um he started developing breasts which again if you're taking estrogen right shock surprise that this is all happening he had his security clearance removed um from from the government he was denied entry into the united states in 1952 it was you know for doing no more than having sex with another man, Alan Turing was, you know, kind of shunned from quite a bit of society, and his body was more or less taken from him. Mm-hmm. Again, he was given the choice prison or these hormones. He chose not to go to prison. He chose these hormones, and now his body is becoming uh, a, a different form than it ever was. And so that eventually leads us to 1954. Alan Turing is now 41 years old. We are two years later. Alan Turing uh, is found dead of cyanide poisoning. It has been, and I don't know, I'm curious how the movie um, addresses this. How does the movie actually address Alan Turing's death and um, whether it was a suicide or not? They kind of don't. Um Okay. Because that is disputed from everything that I've seen. Yeah, uh, so... They, they basically, they show uh, Joan, you know, the, the woman that he was engaged to, uh, right. coming coming and visiting him at some point. Um, and he's, you know, very sickly. Uh, I believe it's the same year that he ends up dying. And uh, after that, I believe it sort of does the movie shtick where it shows sort of like the, what they did now sort of thing where it goes through each member of the team um, and said, you know, this is what they did after the war and, and stuff like that. And they start with him basically saying he died on this day. Um, I, I think that's kind of it. That's kind of where they leave it. Yeah. It- yeah, so he's, um, after analysis was done, he was found dead of cyanide poisoning. Um, it was it has been ruled a suicide um, since that time. That has been challenged um, to varying degrees. There was a um, an apple that was half-eaten beside his bed. The apple wasn't tested for cyanide. Um, and I believe there was no apple that was found actually in his system as he was uh, which for, for anybody who doesn't understand why why apples are important uh cyanide is a derivative of apple seeds like there's a you, very small amount of it in apple seeds which is why it's not really good to eat apple cores um so apples do contain nat- completely naturally a small amount of cyanide typically not enough to kill a person uh, right again especially with a half eaten apple and so right it is, it is one of those things where, given the, the history of everything leading up to this, the body dimorphism that must have been going on, it yeah. is 100% reasonable to me that somebody would take their own life. It is also 100% reasonable to me, knowing what we know about this period of time and how he was treated, that somebody saw a gay man and decided that they were going to commit a hate crime. Especially one... Who's a war hero. Right. I was going to say someone who was who was, you know, in their mind at one point, such a symbol of their country. Um, even though I'm sure a lot of what he did during the war was, did not come out until many years later. Yes. Um, Cause he was like the way, again, in the movie, the way they phrase it when they sort of bring in the team is um, 
So in, instead of like here in the United States, we have like the CIA. Uh, they have MI, which I think is military intelligence is what that stands for. Um, but they have like MI1, MI2. Uh, and they were bringing them in as a division of MI6. And one of the characters goes, there is no MI6. And one of the like military people was like, exactly. So this was like top, top, top classified stuff that was not declassified until decades later. And yeah, that is that is part of the shame um, with all of this, with a lot of um, with a lot of these people who um, who died a little bit earlier on, is that people weren't able to fully appreciate their work, um, even though obviously some of his work was appreciated during this time, you know a lot of this stuff has come out since his death in the decades since that period of time to the point where, again, he dies in 1954. In 2009, there is this groundswell of support for the British government to make a formal apology, mm-hmm. which, again, in 2009, um, British Prime Minister Gordon Brown basically says, you know what, we screwed up. We, it is, um, he says the treatment of Turing is appalling and it is, you know, it was wrong what happened. Um, and that was followed up in, I believe, 2013. Uh, Queen Elizabeth issues a posthumous pardon of Alan Turing. And I know a lot of people, um, and I don't know how you feel about this, Gavin, um, you know, doing things posthumously and decades after the fact and everything. Um, a lot of people, you know, are upset by that and don't like that kind of thing, you know, coming in after the fact, um, too little, too late. And I totally understand that. But for me, I would always rather do the right thing at some point. And damn it, if there isn't somebody that deserves a posthumous pardon, if there isn't somebody that deserves a damn apology from their government for how they were treated, um, it's Alan Turing for, again, we are talking about World War II. We're talking about the Nazis. We are talking about allowing Hitler to continue being Hitler for God knows how much longer. Mm-hmm. And you know what? If if it takes several decades and eventually we can acknowledge that wrong that was committed, I think it's you know I think it is um, worth it. And it doesn't fix anything that happened, but at least it's an acknowledgement that something wrong was done. Um, I... To Alan Turing. I, I agree, like almost blanket. This this is one interesting near exception. Obviously, I think that he is very deserving of this pardon and mm-hmm. public apology. And as, as I'm sure you'll talk about, lots of other things that have been dedicated to him uh, that came after that. But I'd like to point out, so Queen Elizabeth was the one that pardoned him in 2013. Correct. She was... Like, her reign started the year before he died. Man, she's been queen forever. She's been queen. She's the longest ruling monarch in British history, I believe. In world history, as far as I'm aware. And so I actually had to look it up because I'm like, I know she's been queen for a long time. When did she start? So she could have pardoned him when he was alive. Just just putting mm-hmm. that out there. So throwing a, a bit of shade at the British royal family, which I know is so, that's a very hot take. Um, it's not that house. I, I was gonna say I'm like that. That was sarcasm. Uh, <laughs> but so she could have pardoned him when he was uh, alive still. But mm-hmm. anyway, I and I that's not something I realized. But wow, good God, she's been queen forever. She's she's gonna be dead like 
Like, have you seen what they're doing, like, with her travel schedule and everything with the queen? No, and I don't particularly care, to be honest. I Prediction here on the podcast, uh, Queen Elizabeth is dead within, I'm going to say four months. Jesus, Mike. (laughs) I'm going to go four months. Anyway. Elizabeth will be dead. We're moving Uh, on. Well, I mean, we, this well, is okay. sort of... We, I'm like, we need to be careful with our power here, because you remember what happened with... Uh, uh, oh, goodness. Almost a year ago. <laughs> yeah, with January 6th last year, where literally the day uh, oh, before... Like, a couple... I think the day after that happened, uh, mm-hmm. a podcast episode went up where I was like, oh, I'm not worried. And then it as happened. As it turns out. And as it, it turned it out... It wasn't even that you said, I'm not worried. You're like, I'm not worried about anything at the Capitol. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. And so we need to be careful with our power here, Mike. Uh, if you are curious well, about that particular episode, uh, you keep talking. I will find what specific episode that was because, uh, like, I, I think I mentioned last episode that I've been going back through and listening to some of them to try and uh, make a better list of future podcast topics. And, oh, boy, that did not age well. <laughs> well, I mean, you say we need to be careful with our power. It sounds as though you're not a big fan of the British royal family, so... If we I do mean, have but I don't power, want I don't want her to die. I mean, it's going to happen eventually. Like anyway. whether it's in four months or four years, to uh, to get us back um, on track and to close out the episode, uh, Alan Turing is a war hero. Alan Turing is the kind of person that should be celebrated. That statues should be built. That kids in school that are not big macho men can look at and say, "I can still serve," you know, the human race. Um, without having to be someone that is, you know, shooting guns or without having to be, you know, the, um, you know, the, the star of the football team, even though, again, he was, um, a good athlete. Ellen Turing is the kind of role model that should be existing for kids, um, as somebody who, you know, was good at school, at science and in math and found a way to make that happen. Um, and instead, we've spent you know the last you know third of this podcast or so talking about Alan Turing's personal life, and that's both a shame, but hopefully something that we as a society, and I think that yeah. we just in the last maybe two decades or so, have really started to learn from and learn about um, the kind of damage that has been done to so many people and to again society at large because of that, and how we can go about trying to fix that. And so that is part of why I wanted to make a podcast about Alan Turing was because he is a non-traditional hero. There's not too many war heroes we learn about uh, that are math and science people. And I think, again, you know, a little off the beaten path is kind of my brand. Um, Alan Turing, I think, is probably the most famous person we've done on the Mike Takes the Wheel episodes. But he is somebody that uh, deserves a mention in every history class and every kid should have an opportunity to learn about, uh, you know, what you can be if you're just really smart, not just if you're good with a gun or you want to go out and kill some people. And it doesn't just have to be war stuff. A lot of the stuff that Alan Turing did, again, if you dig deeper into it, is stuff that is applicable across so many different fields. And so I want to take this time and say thank you to Alan Turing. And, uh, you know, it took too long, but I think, I think he's finally getting his due. Absolutely. And just looking at like, cause I'm, I'm also on the Wikipedia page, just looking at the, 
uh, list of like things that are now named after him in his honor uh, is is like really impressive. Uh, for example, he's on the fifty pound note uh, over there in England slash the United Kingdom. I don't know if the entire UK uses pounds, but um, he's on at least the fifty pound note. Uh, in 2019, the BBC, which is even bigger over there than it is over here, um, won a contest for the greatest person of the 20th century, which, uh, considering, you know, as problematic as he also, like, was, but Winston Churchill, that he he beat out Winston Churchill. <laughs> he beat out uh, plenty of other, you know, very famous, well-known people. The Beatles. Um you know, that's a heck of a thing. Not to mention, and so we talked about sort of his contributions to math and computer science. He also did a ton of other things. He's like the founding person, like the the grandfather of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the the sort of test that you give to something to see whether it is a human or a computer back when we thought things were that simple is called the Turing test. Uh, the graphics card company, NVIDIA, like the most well, one of the most well-known like computer component manufacturers besides Intel, probably um, named their most recent uh, line of products after him. The, uh, he's also very well-known and, and this is even in my field and I don't understand it. Uh, he's well, apparently after the war spent a lot of time working on mathematical biology, like the actual math behind a lot of the chemistry and why things are shaped the way that they are. Uh, a lot of different like biochemical things that I tried to look into to have something more to contribute in this part, but I just didn't understand it. Uh, and that is part of what, as I was getting ready for this, I was, um, I was almost, you know, put, trying to pump the brakes a little bit just because, you know, we could have a whole separate podcast, not, you know, not like one episode, like, you know, the Alan Turing podcast just on. And I would bet there probably is. It probably is one. And it's going to have to be hosted by somebody way smarter than me. Cause as I'm going through this, like, I really need someone to talk to me. Like I'm a five-year-old when it comes to just how just how much he did and how complex it is and the time in which he was doing it is it is truly remarkable um again like Evan was saying there's a number of things um that are either named after him statues and everything but also just like there's a whole lot of things that he did that are still influential today just like as he did them um and it's it's just truly remarkable again especially when you era adjust, for, you know, he was doing a lot of his work in the thirties and forties and computers, you know, are what they are now. And he is still relevant and his work still matters. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, there's not much more I can say about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, unless you've got any last comments, I think that'll bring this episode to a close. This was really enjoyable. And like I said, one that I actually felt really interesting uh, and like also felt I could contribute to for a Mike takes the wheel episode, which I was going to say, I'm not sure. Can we call this officially a Mike takes the wheel or, uh, is this a, uh, a combo episode? 
I think so, just for the sake of consistency. Fair uh, enough. Well, this has been episode 54 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. We will be back next week with a, uh, a little holiday bonus episode, if, I, am I, if I'm correct on that. Uh, I guess yeah. it's not a bonus episode, but a nice holiday episode um, to keep things going for you. But until then, this has been episode 54 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be live. My name is Mike. That is Gavin. Have a happy holiday, everybody. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Mike Bryson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fenella Campanino. It was sound edited by Mike Bryson and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you.